uh, for my family and I to join you in worship. Uh, as was mentioned, I've had the privilege of pastoring an old historic Baptist church. Uh, it was founded in 1843, lots of highs, lots of lows. And uh, over the last six years that we've had the joy of serving there, uh, the Lord, we've just watched the Lord through, uh, through us, the people of God, doing what you all are doing this morning, just devoting yourselves to the ordinary means of grace, sitting under the authority of God's word, gathering together to pray and worship, just grow our bodies so healthy. And along the ways, one of the blessings the Lord has given me as a pastor is just good, rich, hearty spiritual friendships. And one of those is your pastor, Scott Cope. I just can't uh, tell you how much I love that guy. He's just a good brother. Every time I'm with him, I walk away encouraged. And so I'm so grateful for him. We're so grateful for your church, that Almighty God would plant a church here in Bedford that is committed to his word and his gospel. Man, that is a, a cause to praise. So we've been praying for you all regularly. We're, we're so thankful for all that the Lord's doing here. And I'm thankful to be with you uh, preaching the word this morning. If you do have a Bible, I invite you to turn it with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Just a couple of verses of text this morning, Hebrews chapter 12. And we're going to look at verses 1 to 3. <clears throat> Hebrews 12, 1 to 3, this is the word of our Lord. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight in sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Please join me in prayer before we uh, put our eyes on the word. Heavenly Father, we do love you. We are so grateful that you are a God who would look at us and would consider us with such care that you would speak to us, O oh God. O oh God, how we need to hear from you, how our souls need to be fed with your truth, how we need to be nourished by your word. And so, Father, we thank you for communicating and revealing your truth to us. We pray that even now, you would continue the work you've started, opening our minds, opening our hearts to receive your word so that we could be changed by your word, to be built into and equipped as a people who go out into the world and do your word. Help us in all these things. We pray for your grace and your strength. In the name of Jesus, we pray all these things. Amen. Amen. Uh, so I wonder, do we have any runners in the room? Any runners in the room? Uh, let's do this. If, uh, if you consider yourself a runner, you love to run, raise your hand. Okay, a couple. I'm jealous. Uh, if uh, you know it's good for you, you suck it up, you don't necessarily love it, and you do go for a run every once in a while, why don't you raise your hand? Okay, a couple of those. Uh, if you think running is the worst and you rarely to never go for a run, raise your hand. That, that is sadly is myself as well. I um, think all those categories are well represented here today. Well, whether you like it or not, if you are a Christian, you are a runner. And you are a runner in a race. Different kind of runner, different kind of race. 
but we are runners and we are running a race nonetheless. And you, Christian, actually are running right now as you will be until either the Lord returns or he takes you out of this life and brings you home. As Christians, we are runners and we are running a race of faith. And that race is not unlike a marathon. Now, I've never run a marathon, uh, not even close, but my assumption is that marathons are these long, rigorous, taxing, exhausting, sometimes miserable races that end in great joy and satisfaction when one finishes. And uh, as I've talked to various marathoners that I know, it doesn't seem like one can just roll out of bed and run a good marathon, right? There's training, there's, there's strategy involved in running a marathon. I remember chatting with a friend of mine who competes in marathons, and he was telling me that his preparatory strategy is exceedingly deliberate. In training, he has specific long run days. He has short run days. He has high pace days. He has low pace days. He has rest days. He's structured with his stretching and his sleep and his diet. All of these things involved in his strategy to prepare for running that race. And so marathons are these rigorous races that tax you, but they end in great joy and satisfaction when you finish, and it takes deliberate strategy to run a good race. And I think the same can be said of the Christian life. And the question before us today is a question that maybe you've wrestled with. How do we run a strong race of faith? And what is our strategy for running faith's race? Well, this morning's passage not only likens the Christian's journey of faith to a rigorous race, it also gives us the strategy to run a strong race of faith until we cross the finish line. And so as we step into Hebrews 12 here, the writer is giving us specific strategies for running the Christian race. And he exhorts us in at least three ways. To run unencumbered, to run with endurance, and to run with eyes fixed on the prize. That's how we are to run this race of faith. <clears throat> So first, be encouraged to run unencumbered. Now, the, the book of Hebrews, uh, if you're unfamiliar, with laser focus, has had one bolded, underlined, italicized, highlighted aim to exhort God's people to run the Christian race of faith to the end and to not turn back, right? This was an especially salient aim for the writer because the original readers who predominantly came from a background in Judaism were suffering persecution as Christians. And as their race got hard, they were tempted to stop running. They were tempted to turn around and abandon Jesus and revert to their old ways under the old covenant. And so God, through the writer, for 11 chapters now, has constructed this masterwork of a sermonic letter. And he structured this letter to show the readers that even as they suffer... Jesus is infinitely greater and better than anything and everything they would ever be tempted to leave him for. And because Jesus is better, keep moving those spiritual legs and press on in faith. And so part of that rigorous uh, and yet glorious argument, uh, we, we come to chapter 11, which has paraded this long line of faith exemplars before us. If you're familiar, often called the Hall of Faith, Old Testament men and women whose lives of faith display what enduring faith is, what enduring faith looks like, and what enduring faith does. 
And now this little word, therefore, in chapter 12, verse 1, signals that we are moving from explanation and illustration to application. The writer has showed us throughout the letter what enduring faith is, does, and looks like, and we've seen that illustrated in chapter 11. Now he's showing us what we are to do with it. And we're immediately encouraged to run this Christian race of faith unencumbered. And we can even do that in a couple of ways. First, to run unencumbered of discouragement. Discouragement, that, that this race we're running is for nothing. That, that it's a fool's errand, that we will never make it to the end. How often, as people of faith, we are hit with doubts and discouragements. Even to the point of wondering if, if this is all worth it. Right, if we'll actually ever make it. You ever feel that? You ever think those things? How trying the long straightaways of faith can be. And yet as the blade of discouragement whittles us down, the writer wonderfully asserts here in verse one, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the, the, the cloud of witnesses are the faith exemplars of chapter 11. If you're unfamiliar, put your eyes on the page, scan through chapter 11. There was Abel, who by faith approached God rightly. Enoch, who by faith walked with God until he received faith's reward. There was Noah, who by faith obeyed God. And Abraham and Sarah and the patriarchs, who by faith looked ahead and trusted God and went when he called and lived as exiles and built their lives on his promises, and looked favorably to the future. There, there was Moses, who by faith remained unafraid. There were the Israelites, and Rahab, and Gideon, and Barak, and Samson, and Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith trusted God for triumph. In remarkable circumstances, there were the innumerable saints, who, who by faith suffered extremely in this life. And they died looking towards ultimate victory in Christ. They are a cloud of witnesses who endured in Christ through the hardest stuff of life by faith. This is a cloud of witnesses. And, and the text says this is a great cloud of witnesses. That is a large cloud. There, there are countless witnesses, even more than are listed here. And they're witnesses they are witnessing to us how hard but how worthy this life of faith is. They witness to us what it means to endure through hardship, to, to look to God's unseen, unheld promises, and to continue believing. They witness how able God is to carry his people to the end. They witness how glorious the final reward will be. And, and as we think about this great cloud of witnesses, be encouraged to soak in this word, surrounded because the Holy Spirit through the writer has said that we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. And as one writer notes, these, these faith exemplars surrounding us are, quote, not there to watch you. They are there to be seen by you as you run. Right? It's like these men and women of faith who've run the race before us and have overcome the obstacles by the strength of God who have crossed the finish line, who have endured to the end, are now lining the streets along the marathon route, and we can see them. And, and, and when our spiritual legs get wobbly, 
and our spiritual lungs get winded. And when we trip and we stumble and we're tempted to give up, our eyes meet theirs. And we remember how many under God's strong hand of care ran their race to the end. And we're encouraged to keep going and to run like them, trusting in the God who strengthened them to persevere to likewise strengthen us to persevere. You see, the idea here is decidedly not that the cloud of witnesses are up in glory, ignoring Jesus and watching us run our race, but that God helps us run well as he gives us sight of the testimonies of their races. And the larger point is that there are many who have gone before us. Just look around the room. There are many who are running beside us. There are many who, should the Lord tarry, come after us, all evidencing that we are not on a fool's errand, running some impossible race. Take a moment and personalize this. However nuanced your hardship and your struggling may feel as a Christian this moment, look at the cloud of witnesses. Consider what they endured following Jesus and how the Lord held them fast and know that as God has kept our brothers and sisters to the end, he will surely keep you too. Through dark days and bright ones, through smiling providences and, and frowning ones, God can hold our faith up and carry us along. We know this in part because we have testimonies of enduring faith surrounding us. So run unencumbered of this discouragement that you're running some hopeless, impossible race. Even now, cast that untruth out of your mind and your heart. Also, run unencumbered of every weight and sin. Back to verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Now, this word lay aside is uh, as straightforward as it gets. It means take it off, cast it away, put it down, be done with it, right? The, the same word appears in Romans chapter 13, verse 12, when Paul tells the Romans to cast off the works of darkness. This same word appears in Ephesians 4.22 when he tells the Ephesians to put off the old self, Similarly, the Christian runner is to lay aside every weight. Now, I'm not, a, I'm, not, I'm not an expert on running, but I do know that weights are not a good thing in a race, right? To run with weights is crippling. And this reference to every weight means whatever weighs us down, whatever slows us down, whatever cripples us or holds us back in our race. And while these weights that must be laid aside certainly include the spiritually unhealthy, obviously not good sinful things that steal our time and attention, the, these weights are also the morally neutral things that may not be innately bad, but are still impeding our capacity to delight in and serve God. Right? For instance, maybe an honest look at our lives reveals a life just overloaded with work. Right, A life so aimed at vocational success, reaching financial goals, climbing the educational or the, the corporate ladder that you've had scarce time to devote yourself to growing in the knowledge of God. Or maybe an honest look reveals a life so consumed with leisure 
right? Fun adventures, cool experiences, sports, hobbies, vacations, watching TV. I'm a big soccer fan. I can't wait to watch the World Cup. This is a real temptation for me. But when leisure overtakes your life and you've had scarce time to serve the Lord, right? Not innately bad things, but weights. And so friends, whatever it may be, take a moment, probe your heart. Inspect your life. Ask God of all the stuff that's filling my days, that's marking my experience, what is holding me back from running a good race for Christ? And when our almighty God and grace shows you those things, lay them aside. Christian runner must also lay aside the sin which clings so closely. Now, in reflecting upon sin, the Puritan Thomas Watson once said that sin is a leprosy that cleaves to us. And we know this to be true. Sin cl clings and it cleaves to us. This is what sin does. Now, of course, since Adam's fall in the garden, our very natures are diseased with sin to the point that we have been naturally disqualified from enjoying God and are bound for judgment. But even for the believer who has received the antidote of the gospel, even for those who by grace have recognized their sin before the holy God and in repentance and faith have trusted that God has sent his son Jesus to save us, who have trusted that Jesus died on a cross in our place where he paid sin's penalty, where he endured the wrath of God against us that we deserve, that he died, that he was buried, that he rose from the grave, and that all who repent and believe will have Jesus' righteousness credited to us and his work applied to our souls for our salvation even for the believer who's received the antidote of the gospel, who, praise be to God, sins have been forgiven, whose relationship with God has been restored and repaired by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Even as those who have received the gospel in all its blessings, we know that until our final deliverance, indwelling sin, clings to us. Sin is an enemy. It entangles our legs. It trips us up in our race. And while the true Christian is forgiven and will never lose their salvation, here and now, sin seeks to cause us to fall. And while we get up bumped and bruised and battered and aching, the true Christian will get up and keep running, striving not to trip in sin again. And so we are to look at our lives and lay aside the sin that clings so closely. Right, brothers and sisters, maybe today you can identify some big ticket, ongoing, habitual, unrepentant sin in your life. Would you lay it aside so that you can continue running a good race for Christ? Or maybe the cancer of sin is showing itself less some, like some debilitating condition and more like a common low-grade fever. Maybe even this morning on the way to corporate worship, your words were ungracious or impatient or unkind. Maybe even now there's a discontent, grumbling spirit in you that's keeping you from enjoying God and his people with all the fullness that God desires. Right? Why do we sing that song and not this one? Why do we do this and not that? Why aren't all my preferences being met? Maybe it's something altogether different. Symptoms of the sin that clings 
and keeps us from enjoying God more fully and running well in faith. While in uh, our day, marathoners can wear these up-to-date designed outfits that are, that are made for running, in the ancient world, folks just day-to-day would wear robes and belts. And you can imagine that'd be tough to run in, right? They would trip up your feet. It would be a hindrance. And so marathoners of that day would just take it all off, lay aside their clothes so that they would not be weighed down or entangled so that they could run a better race. And that sort of spiritual lightening of the load is what we must do in our race with the weights of life and with our sin that clings. And so I ask, what is weighing you down today? Right now, ask God to show you what needs to be stripped down and flung off so that you can run the race of faith. And how do we lay aside every weight and sin? Well, it begins with repentance, right? Which is more than just throwing out a quick sorry, Lord, and then going about your day. Back to Thomas Watson. I love the way he talks about repentance in his book, The Doctrine of Repentance. Watson says, repentance before Christ is having sight of our sin and then knowing sorrow for our sin and then confessing our sin under the shame of our sin and then turning from our sin as those who are forgiven of sin. That's repentance. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, that sort of repentance and faith in response to the gospel is how God gives you entrance into the race in the first place. Jesus saves when by grace he draws you to turn from your sin and repentance into him in faith. And if you've never repented of your sin and confessed Jesus in faith for your forgiveness, for your salvation, may today be the day. And Christians in the room, certainly repentance is the godly way that we deal with indwelling sin. So use this moment that God has given us together as Christians and take a good look at at your heart and your life and discern what's helping you run the Christian race well and what's not. And in repentance, cut loose what's not. So in applying the faith examples of chapter 11, we have these three strategies for running the Christian race of faith. First, to run unencumbered. Second, to run with endurance, right? Verse one goes on, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, as we have discussed here, the helpful word picture that the writer uses to describe the Christian life is is a race. And this race is hard, and the goal is to finish, right? The goal is not to sprint really fast for a little while, get tired, turn around, give up. The goal is to run well and to finish. This is the writer's goal when he says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, right? This word endurance is sometimes also translated as perseverance or steadfastness. And what a word this would have been for the original readers. Uh, If you're familiar with Hebrews, uh, maybe you'd remember that back in chapter 10, we read how these Christians in their former days Uh, After they were enlightened with the gospel, they were doing really well. They were running well, even though they were suffering. It says they endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated, and yet they had compassion on those in prison. 
and they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property since they knew that they themselves had a better possession and an abiding one. And while they started so strong, while they were so faithful, while they were running so well, by the time of this letter's writing, they were tempted to give up. And as saving faith will keep to the end, the writer exhorts them at the end of chapter 10, verse 35 and 36, saying, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Right, that is the whole point of Hebrews. Endure in faith. That was the point of chapter 11, to illustrate enduring faith. And here again comes the charge, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That is the major plea here. Just keep going. Run perseveringly up that narrow, obstacle-laden trail until you cross the finish line. Aim to make it to the end of your time on earth so that you can shout the weary and yet the joyful cries of the Apostle Paul who in 2 Timothy 4, 7, and 8 said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And so brothers and sisters, resolve with God's help, whatever the path ahead holds, whatever this day brings, I am running to the end and resolve in a way that does not rely on your own resolve. Because our weak resolve cannot fuel us to the end. But our strong God can and will. And yet while it is only by God's grace and strength that any of us run with endurance in faith to the end, one of God's means for preserving us is charging us to get determined and to get active, right? That tension between God doing it and us relying on his strength for our endurance and us striving ahead with deliberate active effort, that tension is all throughout Hebrews and those two realities dovetail together as we endure. And, and so by faith, trust God to enable your endurance, Right? May the song of your heart be, he must hold me fast. And also devote yourself to your own spiritual conditioning and discipline. Right? Each of us, as Paul said in Philippians 2, must work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Or as Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 7, we are to train ourselves for godliness. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable, so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control. Endurance in a physical marathon comes through disciplined conditioning and deliberate training, and the same can be said of us spiritually. So you want to run this marathon of faith to the end? Well, Christians, as we trust God to strengthen us and persevere us, let's exercise our spiritual muscles. Let's work out our faith with fear and trembling. Let's train ourselves for godliness. Let, let, let's exercise self-control in all things. 
Let's do these things so as to receive the prize. Practically, let's, let's love and study God's word. Let's devote ourselves to prayer and the church. Let's prioritize corporate worship and the fellowship of the saints. Let's remove distractions. Let's be killing sin, lest sin be killing us. And so, brothers and sisters, how's that going? How's that going? And would you take this encouraging word from the scriptures to heart? With God's help, run with endurance. God is strong. God is with you. Take up the discipline that you need to endure and just keep going. So in applying these faith examples of chapter 11, we have these three strategies for running the Christian race of faith. To run unencumbered, to run with endurance. Third, to run with eyes fixed on the prize. Yes, running well includes running unencumbered of sin, running with endurance. But the ultimate thing that we are doing as runners is looking to Jesus. Verse 2 begins with those words, looking to Jesus. That phrase is fleshing out the charge to run the Christian race with endurance that was given in verse 1. And it's telling us how we are to run. We primarily endure by looking to Jesus. Right? First, that means by not looking to everything else. Not to the world, not to earthly goals, not to ourselves, not to other people. As we run, our gaze is not primarily fixed in any of those places. Our eyes aren't even primarily set on the cloud of witnesses. Right? This is really important because we are not followers of Abel or Noah or Abraham or Moses or any of the exemplars of chapter 11. We're Christians. We follow Christ. And all those exemplars serve the one purpose of pointing us to follow Jesus as they did. And so we are encouraged by their testimonies, but our gaze is not primarily fixed on them. It is set on Jesus. And if you're curious what this looks like, to, to live life in a hard world as a, as a Christian, in a world that's fallen and, 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 and as a finite person, Paul modeled this for us in, in Philippians chapter 3. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to flip over to Philippians 3. Just check out how, how, how looking to Jesus informed Paul's perspective. Right? This is a familiar passage to many. After giving his resume, he writes in verse 7 and following, just soak in the word of God. Paul says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
Beautiful verses, right? Paul is so staring at Jesus that his staring at Jesus has transformed the way he sees his time in the world. Since his eyes are on Jesus, he says everything gained here is nothing compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. He says all my suffering here is nothing compared to gaining Christ. So, so I press on forgetting what's behind, straining towards what's ahead, and striving towards the Christian's eternal prize. Friends, we run looking to Jesus to the point where we are seeing our time on earth through the lens of knowing and gaining and glorifying Jesus Christ, our Lord. And why Jesus? Well, Jesus is the ultimate exemplar, right? He's the founder and the perfecter of our faith. This is one of the many precious places in Hebrews when we get to just pause and glory in God revealing to us with greater depth who Jesus is. He's the founder of our faith. Various translations gloss that word founder various ways. Some will say champion or pioneer or source. It's getting at this idea that he's the forerunner. He's the trailblazer of our faith. Not only is Jesus the one who saves us from our sins and enters us into this race of faith, he's also the one who did it by living the life we couldn't, by dying the death we deserved, by rising to glory. He has trailblazed the path of obedience. He's trailblazed the path of faithfulness, the path of righteousness. This is the path that so many Christians have traveled, and this is the path that we are traveling. He's the founder of our faith. And Jesus, we see, is also the one who's going to see us through the finish line because he's also the perfecter of our faith. He, he is the one who finishes and completes our faith. Jesus has purchased his people and Jesus holds us up and he carries us along until we reach faith's victory and our eyes of faith are made into eyes of sight. Right, this is the Savior we worship. And the charge here is that we are to run this race like Jesus looking to him. He is the exemplar of these chapters. So more specifically, what did he do that is so exemplary? Well, the writer gets into it with greater detail. Again, he ran the race. He endured the cross. He was exalted. Right, just, just take in verse 2. Don't, don't let this verse land on your heart in some sort of trite, lifeless, routine way. Stand in awe of what God is revealing to us in this verse. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Friends, the gospel that we declare is the molten hot inner core of the Christian's endurance because the gospel unveils the glory of Jesus to our hearts. The, the gospel proclaims that the thrice holy God is good and in his holiness he will not and he cannot tolerate sin. To do so would compromise his holiness and he is utterly holy and his holiness will in fact break out against unholiness in just judgment. And that is really bad news because we all are naturally sinners and we therefore are the ones who are naturally on the receiving end of that judgment. 
And as guilty sinners, we can do nothing to save ourselves. That's, that's staggering. We can't be religious enough. We can't be good enough. We can't be moral enough. We can't check the box and show up to church enough. We can't put enough money in an offering plate to earn good favor with God. And when that was us and we could not work our way to God, the holy God came to us. And our Lord Jesus, the second person of the triune God, came in flesh and he lived in perfect sinlessness, this life that we failed to live. And Jesus, we read, then endured the cross and despised its shame and he's seated at the right hand of the, of the Father. Right? Jesus is the great faith exemplar who emblazing the trail of faith for us to run down, endured opposition and eventually the cross, despising its shame. In the Roman world, there were few greater shames than dying a sinner's death nailed to a cross. And Jesus on the cross not only bore the physical shame of it, he also bore the spiritual shame of our sin as our sin bearer. And yet I think what the writer means here is that Jesus on the cross refused to see his death as a shame. He knew that as he bore our stripes, uh, our stripes, our, our sins, our wrath, our penalty, that there was a God-glorifying purpose woven into his crucifixion. And he knew that that lowly road would lead to the highest heights. And it did. Because yes, he was buried in the tomb, but he rose from the grave on the third day and he's reigning at the exalted right hand of our heavenly father where he sits victorious because his saving work is finished. And now Jesus, the bringer of the better new covenant, invites his sinful separated people to repent of their sin, to trust him in faith so that their debt would be paid, sins would be forgiven, his righteousness would be provided, and the separation with God would be reconciled through him. And Jesus did this for the joy that was set before him. Right, He ran the hardest race imaginable with the utmost suffering, never ceasing to trust the Father. And he pressed on because he looked forward to a better joy ahead. The joy of pleasing his Father. The joy of crushing the head of the serpent. The joy of abiding with a redeemed people. The joy of experiencing the fullness of God's self-glorifying plan. Jesus really is our great exemplar. Right? The gospel demonstrates how he ran the race before us perfectly and enduringly while looking ahead with joy to the future reward. And Jesus now not only serves as our preeminent model of enduring faith, but again, he's the founder and the perfecter of our faith. He's the one who's made faith possible. And he's the one who strengthens us to persevere in faith on the king's narrow road until we too arrive at the king's city. And so if we want to run faith's race well, we must run it looking to Jesus. And so one more time, if you're here today, because almighty God in perfect wisdom and providence has placed you in this room and you're not a person of faith in Christ, we implore you to trust him who is, according to God, your only hope for forgiveness, your only hope for eternal life, and who's also your only hope for true help and strength here and now. And Christians, as Christ saved and forgiven new covenant people, it's also by continuing to consider Jesus that we are strengthened within the Christian life to persevere. 
right? Within our race, there is a direct relationship between our endurance and considering Jesus, right? We see it in verse three. Look at verse three. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider him. I don't think that means casually entertain a fleeting thought of Jesus. I think that means deeply and regularly meditate. And who are we considering? Him who endured such hostility against himself. Consider Jesus' life as revealed in the scriptures. Consider the hostility that he endured. Meditate on his rejection, his humiliation, his crucifixion as your sin bearer. You ever just stop to think about Christ? You ever just stop, like pause something in your day to, to, to dwell on the gospel? On who he is and what he's done for you? When we take up that blessed work of considering Christ, God helps us not to grow weary or faint-hearted. Isn't that great? So if you're here and you're weary and faint-hearted today, or if you find yourself in a place of weariness and faint-heartedness in days to come, your first move is to seriously and regularly consider Jesus. That's what God wants us to do. There is just something about pausing in our suffering to meditate on Christ, on who he is, on what he's done, and what he endured, on what his work means for us. There's something about that that keeps strength from sapping out of our spiritual muscles and keeps weariness and faint-heartedness from overtaking our hearts. And so where are your eyes fixed today? And will you, as a spiritual athlete, aiming to finish the race, work into your training regimen a regular rhythm of looking to and considering Jesus? In running, are you experiencing the hostility of this life's terrain? If you're a mom, maybe you're feeling worn down from long days of training and discipling and disciplining children. Folks in the workforce, if in your career, maybe long hours and long days just grinding you down. If you're a single person, maybe you're just feeling weary as you faithfully long for the Lord to give you some direction or a spouse or something else. If you're an elderly Saint, and your heart is faint as your physical body breaks down and loneliness settles in. Children, if you're weary at school and maybe you're just, man, I just want a good Christian friend and your heart aches for that. Church member, if you in the Christian life, being a Christian just felt totally lifeless and routine. Fix your eyes on the prize. And consider, if Jesus suffered in the world, shouldn't we who follow Jesus suffer too? And if Jesus has overcome the cross and the grave, won't we overcome sin and death in him as well? And if Jesus rose to glory, won't he one day raise us to glory with him? God has designed the consideration of that Jesus and those truths to strengthen us. So consider Jesus, take heart, and keep going. So brothers and sisters, we are runners. 
and we are running a race of faith and we have a God-given strategy. So let's run unencumbered. Let's run with endurance and let's run with our eyes on the prize. Run the race of enduring faith. Join me as we pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. We look to you and we ask you to strengthen us with faith, that our eyes would be fixed with, on Jesus, that our hearts would know great love for you. We pray that you would fill us up with a joy and a humility that transcends circumstance. We pray, O oh great God, that you would provide light to our minds so that we would know you more and heat to our hearts so that we would love you with all our strength. And we pray that as we do, you would hold us fast and carry us day by day, moment by moment until you deliver us home to glory with you. We pray these things with great faith, expecting that you will do them according to your will. And we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. In his name we pray, amen.